Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and inspired by the special edition of the Physics World magazine this month, Physics on the Beach, in this episode we're going to be exploring some geek holiday destinations, including talking to somebody who regularly goes to Chernobyl and a nutritionist who's found a shed of interest to the physics community on the most southwesterly point of the mainland of Britain. But first I caught up with Ruth Nickel, a yoga instructor whose husband just happens to make mirrors for telescopes, and the two of them spend all of their holiday time seeking out astronomy-related destination. It all started with a trip to a solar eclipse in Turkey back in 2020. Well, a total eclipse of the sun is... Is, is such a rare occurrence. It only happens a couple of hand, a handful of times in a lifetime sometimes. And um, the phenomena of uh, just the fact that the moon fits so beautifully in front of the sun and blocks it out completely, but you see the corona, there's so much wonder attached around that, as well as the fact that it's uh, the alignment of the earth, the moon, the sun. Um, we just really wanted to see that. And... Um, I think the eclipse at Turkey was three and a half minutes, which is quite a long totality. So um, we just went on this. Uh, it was a specially organised eclipse tour. So we literally flew out to Turkey on the one day, got booked into our hotel. Everybody in the hotel, everybody in the hotel arrived at the same time. So those queues were ridiculously long um, because they'd all just come to see the eclipse. Got up the next morning, set up cameras, tripods everywhere there'd been a talk in the hotel the night before by um the sky at night team so pete lawrence chris lintop were there giving this great about everything to watch out for and how to set things up and everything and um, because there's the silence that comes with it when all the birds stop singing because it goes completely dark there's also a phenomena where there's um strange shadows cast by the eclipse and when it's in partial eclipse as well so the shadows shaped like the shape of the sun blocked out by the moon so anyway it was a big long uh, talk given in the hotel and then the next morning we all got up and got ready and went out into the hotel grounds the hotel was just over the road from the beach so a lot of people set up on the beach some people in the hotel grounds and the Sky at Night team were there filming the whole thing. And my husband's into uh, astrophotography, so he wanted to take lots of photographs of it. I was put in charge of <laughs> videoing it through a sort of bog-standard video camera, really. So we got all set up. Um, everybody's geeky and like, excited because everybody's there for this. But what I wasn't prepared for was the emotional effect of the eclipse, both of us actually kind of shed a tear afterwards because it was so moving. The whole experience. So we're all set up ready to go with our cameras and things, and we're all sort of, you know, first contact. Ooh, you know, I'm very excited. It really, it really, I mean, the buzz around the hysteria around the whole place was um, so there's first contact, and then slowly the moon comes across in front of the sun. And um, and you wear your protective glasses. Everybody was given protective glasses so we could watch it safely. But as soon as it goes into totality, you can take these protective glasses off and look at it. And so we took our glasses off. And you just sort of stand there in awe because you can see that the corona kind of moves. It dances. 
And then it's just this black hole, which is the moon, and then the corona dancing around it. And you just sort of stood there, and I thought, I'm supposed to be moving the video camera and videoing it. Had to be jolted back to reality. Like, oh, God, I'm meant to be filming this, and it was sort of slowly drifting off off the centre of the thing. And as I said, this three and a half minutes of just sort of looking around, everything went black, and just on the horizon, it looked like sort of... A rainbow almost, the colours on the horizon going up and all, there was sort of a beck run past the hotel and there's lots of little frogs in the beck that had been sort of chirping and singing away. And suddenly everything just stopped. The birds stopped singing, these frogs stopped croaking and just silence. And it really, I mean, everybody was in awe. Everybody went quiet. And it was, you know, for all, and then when it, comes off there's um, something called the um the diamond ring so as it's coming off from totality the diamond ring appears everybody claps and cheers and and shouts and wow look at that and such a fantastic atmosphere and then of course it moves off so you have to put your glasses back on because it's too bright to look at anymore and you've got to put your protective glasses back on and it's kind of and that's when that emotion kind of comes to you that sort of fill up, incredible, absolutely incredible. So lots of people there with T-shirts on past eclipses. You can see why you immediately get like, oh, my God, this cannot be the first and last eclipse I ever see. I've got to see more of these. Lots of people there who, who you know, they'd seen umpteen eclipses before. And obviously it's not a cheap thing to do, to travel, to go and see a total eclipse of the sun. but. It was well, well worth it. I'm sure you can all picture what that looks like with the corona of the sun appearing around the dark moon eclipsing the sun. But that diamond ring effect is part of something known as Bailey's Beads, which was named after Francis Bailey, who explained in 1836 that as the moon is eclipsing the sun, the craters and topography of the moon allow some of the light to bleed through and it creates these beads of light when there's only one of them left that's when it's called the diamond ring ruth and her husband well and truly got the bug and so the next one we went to was the one in america in 2017 with astro trails it was an astronomy stroke total eclipse trip so we went to see yellowstone meteor crater it's huge. You can't believe how big it is. And you go onto the rim of it and look down into it. It's about a mile wide in the sort of a little museum and classroom nearby. And a huge piece of the meteor is in there. It's just phenomenal to think that something hit the Earth and caused that huge crater. And in fact, the Earth's probably pitted with craters, but we can't see them because the way it's weathered and there's no weather on the moon. So we can see it all. Was it the same kind of emotional reaction the second time? You know, it wasn't. I I get it. I don't know whether it's because that was the first one. We were all all in a field for the second one. Still on the path of totality, obviously. It wasn't as long as about two two minutes and forty seconds, I think it was. Again, lots of people taking photographs with their tripods and the cameras set up and. No, it didn't have quite the same effect, maybe because it wasn't the first time, but 
I don't think for me it was quite as spectacular in that um, the corona looks a little bit different. Every time you see a photograph of a total eclipse, you think, oh, it's going to look the same, but it doesn't. The corona looks different. And, but it's, it still went dark, it still went quiet. There were still lots of people around, but maybe it was because they were more spread out. Because we were in a field, there was plenty of space for them to spread out and, and you didn't kind of get that atmosphere that built up in the hotel grounds. I'm not sure. Not sure why, but it, it's for me. It didn't have the same emotional effect. But I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it, and we would like to go and see another one. It seems that not all eclipses are equal, and the reason for that difference in time of totality is because the Earth isn't flat. And if you think about the globe of the Earth and the moon casting its shadow across it, clearly that shadow is going to move more slowly as it crosses in front of different parts of the curve of the Earth as it passes across. Ruth is carefully mapping which eclipse to go to next. Coming up is one in the United States. Problem is, mortality isn't that long in the ones that are coming up soon. Um, and it seems like a lot of money and a long way to go to see an eclipse for, say, 90 seconds. Yeah, and I know that sounds silly, but that's what you go for, isn't it? Um, so there's one in Egypt and Tunisia in 2027, which we're hoping to go and see that one. Just last week, it was the maximum of the Perseid meteor shower. And John and I got our motorhome. So we went off in our motorhome to get away from the uh, streetlights to nearer to York. So in the countryside near York. Um, but sadly, it was a little bit of a disappointing meteor shower, which was a shame. Because we've gone other years and it's been... Um, there's one, there's one, and you know, every sort of 10, 20 seconds you might see one. Well, in the space of two hours, I, I mean, we did get clear skies. Thankfully, the clouds did part for us. Um, but in the space of about two hours, we only saw between 10 and 20, which isn't massive for the maximum of the Perseid meteor shower. Um, but we do go to Kielder. Um, Dolby Forest have a star party. They're called star parties. Everybody there is interested in astronomy. So there's a red light rule, which means that you can't have white lights on. You can't have your car lights on. Everybody has to have red torches so that if anybody's doing astrophotography, the light doesn't interfere with that. And also it gets you, because you, your eyes have got to adjust to the dark, which, which is nothing in an eclipse. You see, you suddenly go from daylight to darkness. Um, so in an eclipse, uh, you, you want your eyes to adjust, to, to, to take it all in. Oh, that was the other thing in the, in the uh, eclipse in America. The sky went into darkness and you could actually make out some stars, which is quite phenomenal during the day, isn't it? Hey, that's brilliant. Wow. So, yeah, we've been to quite a few. And, and, and this is one of the reasons we got our motorhome, to be able to just open off and do those things and be among uh, we've made lots of friends on these holidays you know the same people keep cropping up even there was even uh, some people on our trip to america that we'd met at dolby forest another astronomy trip on many people's bucket list is of course seeing the southern or northern lights so i got it for john for christmas so we took off from newcastle pete lawrence was our astronomer on board like pete lawrence he's great got a lot of time for him so he did the talk on our side so you, you take off from whichever airport you're going from, your local airport, and you go up to um, just south of the Shetland Islands and you do what's called a holding circle. 
Um, so you're literally one side of the plane's looking out towards the northern lights, and then he turns around and the other side of the plane's able to look out over the northern lights. Unfortunately, they didn't really kick off that night. Um, you got the green arc, the green glow, but it wasn't dancing. It didn't, it didn't liven up while we were there. But we did see it. Um, it doesn't particularly look green to the naked eye from the aeroplane through the glass. And I don't think that's unusual. People have said that they're not sure whether it's pollution or whether it's the northern lights when they're looking out from the sea or wherever. But I have seen some amazing displays here in the northeast of the northern lights. I mean, dancing full on the big rainbow at the top, the dancing curtains in in um, green and pink and purple colours. With the naked eye, you can see the colours with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They were right overhead. Yeah. Um, and it was just lucky. It was when when my children were quite young. I think the twins were still in their cots. Without giving too much away about people's ages, just to give you an idea of how long ago this was, one of those twins is now my colleague as a senior lecturer at the University of the West of England. My ex-sister-in-law had been travelling up from London to Norton, where, where they lived there as well. And um, she rang us about 11 o'clock and said, I've just got arrived. Northern lights are kicking off, go out. So we went outside into the garden about 11 o'clock at night and there were, I mean, if she hadn't said that, we'd have just put, put telly off and gone to bed, wouldn't we? So, <laughs> so we went outside and it was like, oh, it was just the curtains were moving and it was, so I go and knock on my neighbour's door. This is how geeky I am. I'm like, somebody's got to see this. I can't just be watching this on hill. Went and knocked on my neighbour's door. Come out and have a look. And they were like, oh, right, yeah. You know, people just don't react the same. You know, you are excited about it or you're not, I suppose. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> How can you not be? How indeed. And Ruth's experiences with the eclipses have fed into her work as a yoga instructor. And she's actually got a visualisation meditation based on the experience of seeing an eclipse. I won't read it out to you now. Though. And while it's hard to imagine, perhaps, that there are some people out there who wouldn't want to see the northern lights or experience a solar eclipse, on the other side of the coin, it could be hard to understand why some people would want to visit places like Chernobyl, the site of one of the biggest nuclear disasters that the world has seen. Tom Scott is a professor of radioactive materials at the University of Bristol, and he spends a fair amount of his time at Chernobyl. Just to say that there are a few problems with the audio at the start of this interview, but things do improve and it's worth sticking with. I've, I've never been there on holiday, but I've seen an awful lot of holiday makers going into the exclusion zone. So I, I've, I've been working there with my team on and off uh, for the last three or four years. Um, and that meant we've spent a lot of time, not only at the power plant, but we spent a lot of time in, in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. And so as part of the field work that we've done there with, with robots, with radiation sensors, we've seen a lot of the comings and goings of the tourists. And it's been very, very interesting. If you weren't working there, would you be drawn to go to it? Well, I mean, having talked with some of the people that visit, because you have to stay in the same, uh, if you're staying in Chernobyl town, which is where we stay, <clears throat> there's only one place to eat. So you bump into a lot of tourists and and they always ask the question, well, why are you here? And we tend to always respond and say, so, so why are you here out of interest? What's interesting? 
And it, it seems that, um, you know, the people that are going to Chernobyl are essentially sort of thrill seekers. They're wanting to go somewhere which is perceived as being dangerous, somewhere that's perceived as being exotic because it's an exclusion zone and nobody's, you know, nobody's living there. Nobody has done since since the end of the 1980s. Um, and so it's seen by these people as, as a notable place to, to sort of check off on their list and maybe brag to their friends about. Do you ever meet anybody who's interested in the nuclear physics side of things there? Oh, absolutely. And, and in fact, since the uh, HBO miniseries on Chernobyl, there are a lot more people who are interested from a nuclear sort of perspective, nuclear physics perspective. And of course, I come from that world, from that community. And lots of colleagues who I've worked with in other organisations have been to Chernobyl um, as tourists, um, not be- not because of any perceived danger, but because of the perceived interest about, you know, a- as an event, obviously, it's regarded as being the world's worst nuclear disaster. But also it's attributed to the downfall of the USSR as well. So, and so from a socio-political perspective, it, it, it has very big significance to people. Uh, and that's why, you know, a, a lot of people will go there, you know, probably the biggest proportion will only go there once, but some people will return there, you know, several times over the course of their life. Um, it is a really special place, I have to say. I, I really enjoy being in the exclusion zone. It's um, it's a bit like going back in time, like in a time capsule. Time has been frozen in place to an extent in that, that you know, people aren't living there, buildings haven't changed. But Mother Nature is gradually taking back over. And, you know, you have these, whether it's concrete buildings or, or buildings in villages, you, know, you have trees growing up through the roof, etc. Um, and so so it's, it's kind of strange. I sort of liken it often to sort of being like in a zombie film, but without the zombies, <laughs> but, but the rest of the atmosphere, if you like. Because I've seen the images of things like dodgem cars and, and things like that. When you're walking around, are there significant numbers of people there? In, in the year before COVID, um, the, the notional numbers for tourists was on the order of 100,000 um, to go into the exclusion zone. So even over the period that we've been going out, we've seen the facilities improve dramatically Um in terms of when we first went out there, and there's only a handful of places you can stay in Chernobyl town. It, it, you know, I, I think one star was uh, was probably generous. And each time we go back, it, it's nicer and it's nicer and it's nicer. And you know, the the you know everything's going up in terms of the sort of standard and quality of the experience, which of course is because of the tourists and the money that they're bringing. So. I think it, from the perspective of the, the locals and bringing some money to their economy, which clearly hasn't, the economy's not, not been very, very sort of active or successful for quite some time, having these numbers of tourists is actually very good for breathing back some life into the area. Um, so I, I'm very much an advocate for this kind of tourism because it also helps people understand about nuclear energy, about radiation. And I think it gives them an appreciation for the fact that actually human beings in majority vastly overestimate the hazard posed by radiation. And if you visit somewhere like Chernobyl, which is the worst nuclear disaster zone in the world, you know, hands down, nobody disputes that. You realise actually now it's not that bad at all. You're not in any danger when you go there as a tourist. At the end of a couple of our research trips, we've, we've been taken 
uh, to Pripyat to see what the tourists see uh, and to understand, you know, what, what it is they're seeing versus what we're seeing, because what we're doing is very different. Um, and to some extent, uh, my perspective from what I've seen is very much the tourist route into Chernobyl is set up to meet the, the needs or wants of the tourist that's going there. So first of all, I should say, tourists are only allowed to go to certain places. They're, they're chaperoned the whole time. And the places that they go to are perfectly safe. So no one's actually in danger. Um, but there are in some places, so for example, you mentioned the Dodgem cars or, or, or the Ferris wheel. There are some locations where the radiation very locally is a bit higher and of course, then if a guide gets out a Geiger counter, he can show you that there's lots of clicks, but but usually they're not translating that into a dose because actually the dose isn't very meaningful at all. But lots of clicks on a Geiger counter is enough for the tourist to go, oh, <laughs> oh, this must be dangerous, you know, and, you know. And I think it's probably plausible that in some instances, actually, radiation sources have been deliberately placed there for the purposes of a show and tell. Now, I can't say that that's definitely true to say that but i suspect from watching some of these guides that that um you know some some materials deliberately been put in one place so that they can show tourists a hot spot if you like mm. but if that so you say that they're they're taken specifically to places which are safe does that mean there are places which aren't safe um of course i mean uh obviously you can't go onto the power plant site <laughs> and um you know, it, 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 to get to somewhere unsafe is actually quite quite difficult in fact either because of security or or because people just don't know where to go or the areas are specifically off limits so outside of the power plant the most dangerous place to go uh, quite possibly is the center of the red forest which is the area of land immediately to the west of the power plant where a lot of the primary sort of fallout with fuel debris landed it's called the red forest because the radiation levels were high enough for the trees to die and they went bright orange and the closest translation is red forest. Um, so, so doses there are, are quite substantial. They're not immediately lethal, of course, but if you were to camp in the middle of the red forest for, uh, for several nights, for example, it's quite likely that you'd get some effects from radiation exposure still. So, But what I would say is the areas which are potentially hazardous are very small and they're well cordoned off. Okay. And that's about just where the fallout specifically landed that's making that difference. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're talking about bits of uh, fuel debris and graphite from the core, which, which immediate, you know, fell on the land immediately adjacent to the site. So, um, it, it, of course, fuel debris, even after 30-something years, is still going to be highly radioactive. It's going to be dangerous. So you, you don't want people coming into contact with that material but but in the main, that material is buried or, and has been buried for quite some time now anyway. Okay. And what are you doing there? Uh, so we're doing uh, a sort of work in the exclusion zone where we're using um, radiation mapping robots. Some of them are, are in the air, they're UAVs, and some of them are on the ground, um, where we're looking at specific areas to identify hotspots which haven't been seen before, to try and understand why they're there. Uh, you know the mechanisms for those hotspots to to reside. So that's a practice for us to demonstrate that robots can be used very effectively in in contaminated nuclear facilities. And to an extent, it provides a demonstration of technical capability, which will then help us take the technology onto UK or other international nuclear sites where 
you haven't had a disaster, but there's still the same requirement to do repeat monitoring um, for for radioactivity. So that's in the exclusion zone. On the site, we're actually working with the power plant. We're working inside the new safe confinement for, for similar purposes. Again, is to send the robots where it's not safe for the humans to go and certainly going you know, all the way into to unit four to, to the, the sort of famous elephant's foot, if you like. Um, it's not something that for a human being you should want to do and you should certainly not hang around in an area like that. But a robot could take its time because it's more tolerant to the radioactivity when augmented with lots of sensors, so neutron detectors, gamma spectrometers, scanning, laser scanning systems, etc. What we're trying to do there is, again, show that we can repeatedly monitor an area so that you can compare one survey to the next to the next. And the reason that we want to do that is the, you know, the authorities are now going to start to want to take apart the sarcophagus structure and get to what's left of the reactor core inside unit four and gradually take it apart and put that waste into suitably designed packages and that will go off for storage and disposal. But essentially it makes the whole facility safe. But of course, if you're going to start moving bits of material out of a of a blown up reactor core, that's likely to spread contamination as you do it. So the point of the robots is that you can send the robots in at the start of a shift or at the end of the shift, and they will exactly repeat the survey they did the time before in terms of, of the area it covers and the line of survey that it took so that you can see from, from the start of the shift to the end of the shift if the radioactivity has, has changed in its distribution and intensity. And of course, ultimately, over the course of many years, the radioactivity levels should decrease. But in the interim, it might be that in some instances that you might get some fuel debris that's in the process of moving it with a mechanical grab gets spread in a different part of the facility. And you need to spot that quickly. And it's best spotted by a robot than a than a human being whose dosimeter suddenly goes off the scale and there's a chance that they've had a dangerously high level of exposure. So really we're trying to remove the humans into a supervisory capacity and show that robots can do the heavy lifting, if you like. And as part of that, the surveying or the repeat characterization is what we're really driving our technology development at. Could you describe the robots for us? Sure. Well, there's two that that, that are our favourites. One is, is called the suitcase robot, which is possibly the ugliest name for a robot. Um, but it's, it's shaped like a suitcase and it's actually designed to be hung from a gantry crane and... What that allows us to do, either in an intermediate level waste store at Sellafield, which is what we've primarily been developing the technology for, or for going over the top of the sarcophagus, where you can't put human beings over the top of the sarcophagus because the, the gamma shine is really high. Um, it allows us to do 3D radiation scans of the top of the structure looking down. And as we start to dismantle, we can repeat use the suitcase robot to provide verif verification that certain amounts of material have been removed, where the radioactivity is coming from in terms of its shine path, all of that kind of thing. So the suitcase, while sounding a really boring name, is actually a very highly finessed piece of robotic kit with lots and lots of different sensors on. Um, the alternative to that is, is um, spot the dog, if you like. Um, from Boston Dynamics, we're using a quadruped robot, which is called Spot. Um, and we've augmented spot with different radiation sensor and laser scanning systems so that 
Spot can repeat survey uh, different parts of a facility. And in doing so, he's picking up all lots of radiation measurement readings as he goes. And it allows us to very quickly compare like for like on repeat surveys. But Spot has a lot of inbuilt sort of cleverness uh, to, to him through its AI. So it has great collision avoidance capabilities. So actually Spot can work in the presence of human beings as well as working on its own. And if there are unexpected objects in its path, then it has the AI capability to navigate its own way around them, which is really quite important because not only might the radiation levels change, but the layout of a certain facility might change because you might have some, you know, a pipe falling across a corridor or something like that. Spot would have the capability to navigate its way through. I'm glad to hear that Spot's been put to good use because the last time I saw him has been kicked over, but getting back up again quite brilliantly. Um, I hear you're going back to Chernobyl quite soon. <laughs> yeah, in about two weeks, in fact. Um, so we've we've got the whole team double jabbed. We've got all of the permissions. Um, and we're very much looking forward to to going back. You know, it's um, just because we have COVID doesn't mean problems elsewhere in the world stop. Um, the problems are still there. And so it is, you know, really fantastic that, that the university and also the UK government and the Ukrainian government can support us to, to travel whilst there are significant restrictions still in place across the world. And what are you going to do this time? Is it more of the same or a specific reason? We'll be spending notionally our first week out in the exclusion zone, uh, doing aerial and ground surveys of specific sites. Um, and then we'll be moving on to the power plant site and initially, we'll be working in units one, two, and three, which obviously d- weren't, didn't blow up. <laughs> um, but, uh, but the point being is it's those, those three units are essentially twins of unit four. And what we can do is we can practice and we can demonstrate the repeatability in a much safer environment, such that as we go towards the end of the trip, then we can start to make the real deployments uh, inside unit four, which obviously we have to do very carefully you have to sort of inch your way in primarily it's the robots going in but we will you know we will have ourselves i expect to have gone a short way in ourselves but of course we we're not going to put ourselves in harm's way we've got all of the ppe and dosimetry that you could possibly imagine um to ensure that that we're all kept nice and safe but that we have full contact with the robot at all times and if we need to recall it then we can do so safely well i, I mean what will you see in unit four when you physically are in there it's a uh, sort of corridor structures, if you like. I mean, it's 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 a power station. Any power station you go into, especially a nuclear power station, loads of pipe work everywhere. And, and so one of the things uh, that's really important for for these kind of surveys is is not just to be scanning the floor because yes, you might have contamination on the floor, but it can also be that overhead pipe works and duct works can be where you've got sources of radiation, for example. So it's really important that we try to form a 3D scan of the whole structure. Um, And what we're aiming for ultimately is to create a digital twin, which is constantly updated by new survey data. Um, And also, as as you, for example, cut out pipework or bits of wall, then the twin is updated to reflect that. And you can understand the massive material that's been removed. So yeah, there's there's quite a lot that we expect to be getting. And it's, you know, this is, I would still say after three or four years, we're still just at the start of the collaboration and the start of the activities very much. And, you know, we, we hope that we'll be working there for the next decade or more, helping them to 
to do an efficient decommissioning as quickly as they can. Well, that, I mean, that's what you're doing for your, for your day job. Some people would love to do that for a holiday. But what, what do you actually do on your holidays? Do you go on nerdy holidays? I, I'm a complete nerd. Um, obviously, being a professor of nuclear materials, I'm obsessed with radiation. My favourite place to go to is Cornwall. Um, and typically, in the car that I drive down, I have a radiation mapping capability in the car. Uh, with a graphic user interface which shows where I am and I you know as I drive around the country roads I form a snail trail which is which is colorized to show the relative radioactivity (laughs) (laughs) and and of course Cornwall's got lots of uh, natural sort of radiation sources so it's it's really good fun to 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 do that and my children will sit in the back of the car you know saying daddy we got 120 counts per second (laughs) you know, um, so I'm afraid I've infected children with the same thing. But but why not? You know, it's uh, it, it can be educational as well as relaxing these kind of holidays when you're a bit of a geek. So while Tom Scott is tracking the radiation in Cornwall on his holidays, personally, I prefer to go to Devon. And for those of you who don't know, there's a bit of a rivalry between Devon and Cornwall here in the UK, chiefly surrounding the cream tea which is essentially a cup of tea with a scone and cream and jam. Not that controversial, you would think. But each summer, as the summer draws in, people start to argue about whether you should put the cream or the jam first. In Devon, they do it one way. In Cornwall, they do it another. And I don't know about you, but when I'm on holiday, all the rules go out of the window. And just the sound of the sea can make me reach for the nearest ice cream. Meaning, of course, that afterwards I have to choose my food even more carefully. Over a cream tea while I was in Devon recently, I caught up with Professor Jeff Bronstrom, a professor of experimental psychology whose research focuses on the psychobiological controls of food choice and food intake. So I work at the University of Bristol in the School of Psychological Science. I work in the Nutrition and Behaviour Unit there, so we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what makes people choose the foods they eat and the amount of food that they eat and when they eat and so on. So we ask questions about human dietary behaviour. Now, why do we need that? Well, we need it because things are going badly wrong. We're eating the wrong kinds of food and uh, we're interested in dietary behaviour just because it's a fascinating topic, but also because maybe it could help us to figure out how to make people a bit healthier and what are the wrong kind of foods then well we we know that our diets changed quite a bit especially over the last well few last few decades really it's changed remarkably and we know that that has taken place alongside an increase in so-called diet related disease so we know for example that diabetes is increasing we know increasing prevalence of obesity and especially amongst young kids which is particularly uh, worrying and so we're we're pretty certain that people are eating the wrong kinds of foods and those foods are increasingly available to us but um, we don't know why we always like those foods what makes them so delicious and maybe if we could figure out you know what our connection is to those foods then we could think of ways to stop us from eating those and maybe choosing foods that that prevent us from uh, from suffering from some of these diet related diseases Imagine you were on a lovely holiday. Would you go for a cream tea or would you pick something else? Well, I I, I love a cream tea, I have to say. 
So, uh, you know, I don't necessarily practice what I preach, I have to say. Although I, th- I think it, I do try to, uh, um, uh, I do try to eat um, healthily once in a while. When I'm on holiday, of course, not necessarily always. Mm. So I think the bottom line is everything in moderation. Is it as simple as saying, instead of chips tonight, I'm going to have lentils? Is that just a straight, that's a good idea? Generally speaking... Yeah, if you're, if you're the kind of person who would typically eat chips every night, then, yeah, switching to lentils, probably a very good idea. What's interesting about it is that simply telling people to slip, switch to lentils um, is one thing. Actually getting them to act on that is another thing. So um, what I think is really interesting is trying to understand why it is many of us want to do one thing but end up doing something else. And do we, know, do we have an insight into that? We know that some people have got more... Uh, restraint so they have that ability to recruit that what what you might call a kind of cognitive resource an ability to be able to to inhibit their urges for cream key cream teas and uh, and chips um but 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 for the most part um they they're, they're, they're not so good at that and we know a bit about brain function and we know something about the the processes that are involved in that kind of um relapse uh, but there's still an awful lot to learn, really. And there aren't any simple messages, unfortunately, that at this stage that can uh, say with any kind of guarantee that, that, that we can correct people's behaviour. Oh, I know this is a bit of a diversion from the usual fare of the Physics World Stories podcast. But given that it's the holiday season, I hope you'll forgive me for introducing some different science into the podcast this month. But don't worry, we'll return to the physics now because... Professor Jeff Brunstrom is also a regular visitor to Cornwall and one of his favourite places there is related to physics in a part of Cornwall referred to as the Lizard is the Marconi Centre. What I find is that if you, if you go on a family holiday, if the kids are happy, then pretty much everybody's happy. But if the kids are planted on a beach somewhere um, and they're happy, then sometimes that gives me an opportunity to slope off and uh, maybe think a bit about human dietary behaviour, but also to do some exploring and to, yeah, think about um, other things, science-related. In particular, I suppose one of my passions is to find, and I find I tend to go to Cornwall. I, what I find is that there's sort of science uh, around me and scientific experiments around me, and I'm interested in the history of uh, telecommunications in particular, um, partly, I guess, because I stumbled across this in my and on my holidays in Cornwall. Um, so th- th- there are various museums and interesting things to find, especially in the uh, southern Cornwall and towards the, the 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 far tip of Cornwall, towards Land's End and the Lizard. That, that I think are really really interesting. Um, there's some beautiful beaches there, but um, just near to Lizard Point, there is a hut. And the hut in of itself really looks like any normal, almost like a bit like a, a shepherd's hut. And, and I would walk past this uh, hut on a, on a very regular basis. And, you know, one day I, I saw this hut was open and there looked to be somebody inside who knew what they were talking about. And I saw there was a little queue to walk inside the hut. And the chap inside, after waiting in turn for this to get into this hut, explained that this was a hut that was erected by Marconi to do a scientific experiment. And at that stage, 
I don't think that they really understood or knew whether or not it was possible to transmit radio waves over long distances. He thought that perhaps because of the curvature of the Earth, these radio waves might just sort of leave and bounce off the Earth and, and, and go off into space. But he was convinced that these radio waves would somehow, and I don't understand the physics, but they would somehow um, um, arc round the uh, the Earth and then would uh, connect in a straight line a point um, across the globe. And so he needed two points to test his theory. And I don't know why, but he chose lizard point, I guess because the lizard, lizard sticks out. But he needed another point as well. And the other point was on the Isle of Wight. So direct line of sight in the sense that, okay, it goes around the curves of the earth, perfect, but no land in the way. And he transmitted the first radio waves that were uh, received on the Isle of Wight from Lizard Point. Now, I I don't know, I find that just just remarkable. If you think about that one moment in the history of telecommunications, and it all happened in this, apparently they were, they were planning to rip down this hut. I think there was maybe a grumpy... I'm making up some of this, but I think there was a probably a grumpy old farmer who wanted to <laughs> rip it down on his land. Somebody came along, you can't knock this hut down. Mm-hmm. This is, apart from the fact it's National Trust property, you can't knock this down. This is a historic building, yeah. and it's been restored, and I think there's a little charity now that, that looks after this hut and gives little guided tours. So it's a, it's a remarkable find when you've got family down on the beach having a wonderful time to just stumble across this absolute national treasure. Brilliant. Jam or cream first? Oh, I think, uh, I think, I think, uh, I think you, you should have um, wh- whichever you, you prefer because from a, a nutritional perspective, it all goes down the same way. <laughs> I don't think it makes that much difference, to be honest. Thank you very much to Professor Jeff Brunstrom, Professor Tom Scott and yoga instructor Ruth Nicholl for talking to me for this episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. And don't forget that there's a special edition of the Physics World magazine this month looking at physics on the beach. If you have any particular physics-related holiday destinations or places to visit that you'd like us to know about, why not send us a tweet at physicsworld. We'll be back next month when we'll be looking at open source software. I hope wherever you are in the world, even if this isn't your holiday season, that you have an excellent rest of August. And if you don't already do so, make sure you subscribe to the Physics World Stories podcast on your favourite podcast provider. And just one last thing before I go. Professor Tom Scott wrote an article for Physics World called Glimpsing Chernobyl's Hidden Hotspots. You can find it on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com, including drone footage of those incredible places, like the Red Forest. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.